time to talk at the end. Actually, you can have as long as you want at the end, whenever you want to leave. I'm going to pray really quick. So, Father, I pray that you would bless this time. I pray that you bless the children. Lord, I pray as they gather around your word in smaller groups and study this exact same story that we're studying here. Father, I pray that you would speak to them. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them at their young age. Speak the truth of who you are to them, Lord. And I pray that you would meet them as they meet across the hall. And that you would also meet us here with the kinds of things that set our hearts and minds free. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. If this is your first time here, you're coming right in the middle of the story of David, which we've been going through this whole summer. And the last three messages have all been looking at David as he's been in the wilderness. And so finally, we're kind of getting to a place where he's coming out of that, the story today. Um, But this is an interesting story. And Last week, um, some some messages come easy, you know, and some you kind of got to wrestle with. Last week, I had to wrestle with that one a lot. This week did the same thing to me because it's a strange, bittersweet story in a lot of ways. Yeah, David's coming out of the wilderness, but there's also kind of a tinge of sadness to the whole thing, which we'll see. And the title of the message today is The Mighty Have Fallen which is kind of a downer, (laughs) but you'll see what we can get from that. The last week we talked about trusting God versus taking matters in our own hands. And today we're going to talk about um, coming out of the wilderness and as we trust God, which is kind of the same thing, I guess, but it's kind of looking at David um, and how the wilderness changed him, kind of changed him again. It's a little weird for me this week. My cousin is here, who's also named David, so I'm not talking, to, I'm not talking about my cousin. I'm talking about the Bible, David, not the namesake. Um, but uh, we're going to look at three stories today. Three stories uh, we're going to move through pretty briefly. I'm going to paraphrase mostly. Um, we're going to talk about David and the Amalekites, Saul's death, and David becoming king. And then we're going to look at the points or the focus of this is going to be Looking at coming out of the wilderness, what is that like? And the mighty have fallen, which is the title of this, which you've heard because that's kind of one of those things that people say. It came from this. We're actually going to encounter where that's from. You know, half of what we say is either from the Bible or Shakespeare. This one's from the Bible. You just don't know. Or the Godfather. That's quoted often. And Star Wars. Yeah, if you're here. Or the Simpsons. I've gone too far. I'm sorry. All right. All right. First story, <laughs> David and the Amalekites. Let's talk about this. Again, I want to lay out these stories so you have in your mind uh, what's happening. Then we're going to talk about it. All right. So first bit, I'm going to read. So you remember last week, David had been with the Philistines and trying to convince them like, yeah, I'll help you fight against Israel. And then the king was like, cool. But then all of his guys were like, yeah, no, he's not going to help us. So send him back. Right. And David had a place where his guys were all hanging out. They were like hideout in the wilderness where they'd been doing things. You know, some of those things weren't great, as we talked about last week. But David gets sent back. Like, you're not going to fight us against, you're not going to fight with us against your own people. That's not going to happen. So go back to your place and it's fine. So he's like, okay. So they go back there and they find out that while they were gone, it was attacked. 
and all the women and children were taken away. So let's take a look at this. First Samuel 30. David and his men reached Ziklag. That's where it was on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They'd killed none of them but carried them off as they went, their own, went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it had destroyed by fire and the wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam and Jezreel and Abigail, uh, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, which was a story we didn't um, go into. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So here we're kind of, again, David had just gotten out of a really bad situation. God had gotten him out of that because he was going to have to fight against Saul and these guys, and he'd kind of committed himself to doing it. And so he was going to either have to actually do that, which would be bad, or turn his back on the king that he'd been helping, and they kind of made some agreements, and that would be bad. So he was in a bad spot, a rock and a hard place, and God just kind of got him out of it. That's really nice. And I could see him on the way back being like, I'm so glad that didn't happen. And then the moment he gets back, he finds out this is way worse. So a lot of times when you're on your way out of a wilderness experience and you finally see the light at the end and you're just now getting to it, and then when you finally get there, you realize, oh, my gosh, something way worse has happened. I always tell people, like, don't say it couldn't get worse, you know, because there always could be bees, you know, or something like that. <laughs> bees would make it worse, you know. Um, there's always something that can get worse, so don't, don't say that. <laughs> um, and David, in fact, finds himself in a situation where it's gotten worse. And it's really messed up now because, like, even though he was in the wilderness, he'd had his guys, and they were doing all this stuff, and they liked, at least they liked each other. And now those guys are like, this is all your fault, and we're going to kill you. So that's a low point of low points, right? But here's where you start to see the difference. Remember last time when David was like, gee, I better get out of here because that Saul guy's going to kill me if I don't, which was like taking matters into his own hands, remember we talked about? Here it says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. See, now that's, this is an interesting, like, this juxtaposition of, like, everything is terrible, everything's been stolen, my wife and kids might be dead, they don't know yet that they're not, and, but he's going to find strength in God. And this is what you start to see the change in David coming out of this wilderness, that instead of taking matters into his own hands or fighting with the guys or whatever, he finds strength in the Lord his God. So what does he do? Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod, which is a priestly garment. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, the Lord answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. And then they do. They go after the guys, and they get everything back. They get everything back. There's a few more details, but they're not totally pertinent to what we're going to go through. Verse 18, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old boy young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken, David brought everything back. So, um, slight little side note, uh, I put on one of the kids' sheets that there's often references here of these multiple wives these kings have taken, and you're like, is that cool? Like, was God cool with that? There was actually an instruction in Deuteronomy 17 that said, do not do that. So, God wasn't cool with that, but just a side note if you're wondering. But God, but what happens is David gets, he's in a bad situation. God gets him out of a bad situation. He gets into a, a maybe worse situation, and then he, but he doesn't fret. He evidences some sort of change in himself by inquiring of God. God gives him an answer. They do it. It works, okay? 
That's our first story. And the guys are all happy about that, right? And, I, and when I talked about trusting in God, okay, I, I want to also say kind of a, a side note about this. There's kind of two types of trust, I guess, that we might be thinking about. Um, and I, I couldn't think of what to call them, so I'm going to call them direct versus indirect, okay? Because you could hear this story, and I'm using it metaphorically or that sort of thing. Like we're kind of experiencing, I'm using the, the experience of David as to kind of apply in our own lives, like what can we see from that, right? Using the story this way. So you might have thought, as I did, you know, like, well, if God told me, like, of course you'll overtake these people, I probably would be like pretty good with that, right? You know what I mean? Like a direct thing. God's like, you go do this. You're like, okay, I'll go do that, you know? And we have examples of this, you know, like there's at least 10 of them that are in the Bible, like, do not commit murder, you know? So you're like, I wonder if I should murder. The answer is no, but people do murder, you know what I'm saying? And then, then the, so that's the kind of the direct, direct trust, like trusting God in a direct way, right? <laughs> and then there's like an indirect way where uh, we probably find ourselves most of the time um, where God says, like, you know, see these flowers in the fields? And see these birds, like they don't, none of these things are doing anything to take care of themselves. I'm just taking care of them. If I'm going to take care of them, don't you think I would take care of you also? Yet we spend so much time worrying about um, God taking care of things, don't we? I would call that more indirect because it's not, I mean, he makes a promise, but he kind of says, you're going to have to trust me, okay? And so what I, what I want to help you not do is... When you're in a situation that requires this type of indirect trust and you hear a story about something with direct trust, if these words are even right, I don't know, you can tend to kind of go, well, of course I would trust that. You're not dealing with this. You know what I mean? And what I want to say to you is that's just not true, okay? Because we all experience both often. And something about the times we have had this, you know, build a trust in this area as well, where we maybe don't have all the specifics. Like, part of trusting God isn't saying, okay, God, give me the exact list of how you're going to do this thing, and then I will be okay with it. You know, there are times when God says, do exactly this thing, and he wants you to do exactly that thing, like Moses striking the rock for the water, and he's not okay with you going, I'm going to make it up as I go, and then I'm going to do it twice, and God's not okay with that. You know, and you can be like, gosh, why is that such a big deal? There's other times when God just says, hey, you know what? This is going to work out. And you go, yeah, but how? And he doesn't have to give you the answer. You see what I'm saying? Again, I just want us to get hung up in that. Because you're going to find yourself mostly living in that second one, that indirect one, where God's like, just trust me. And I want to say that today that we can see that David has found again this trust in God, which he had. And we're looking into this now, the second story. Saul dies. So Saul does end up fighting against the Philistines. I'll just paraphrase this quickly. The fight doesn't go well like God said it wouldn't. And then Saul and his sons are like running away and then they're injured. And then um, Saul is going to die, you know, and they've been overtaken. So Saul says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. So he's like, you need to kill me because I don't want them to get the glory of killing me. Right. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on the same day. So that's, a, that's, that's bad, you know. When the Israelites along the valley 
and those who crossed the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. So the Philistines now are like, you remember, this? these are the guys David was hanging out with, but these are also the guys that Goliath was with. This is like an enemy. So now they're taking over parts of Israel. And Saul's dead. So now Israel has no king in one sense. We all know that David's anointed king is Israel, but like functionally he's not there yet. But then David hears about Saul's death. So you remember how Saul died? He took his sword and he fell on it, right? That's how Saul dies. Saul kills himself to not be embarrassed by being killed by Philistines, okay? So in 2 Samuel, now we've left, the, we've left the book of 1 Samuel, now in 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. So David just gets back from getting all his stuff back. So I was like, hey, a high point again, right? Like, everything's good, and we were successful, and God told us how to do it. Like, we're functioning right again, okay? This is how our lives function the same way, guys. You know, it's not just a clear plot line. You know, these things go up and down. Following God is difficult, like we said last week. They'd been there two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. And then David's like, uh-oh, what happened? David asked, tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. So this is a big piece of information for David to know. We don't know exactly how he feels about it yet. Because, I mean, remember, Saul was trying to kill him so many times. But Saul was also kind of like, not his dad, but he was like his, he, was, he came under Saul. He loved Saul. He loved Jonathan a lot, you know. So now he's finding out they're, both, they're all dead. So David asked him, how do you know this? He says, Amalekite. It's like, uh, sorry, not Amalekite. Sorry. I have the wrong note in here. So the guy claims um, to have seen Saul injured. Like, I saw him. He was on the battlefield. And then he, then, and remember that Saul asked his armor bearer to, like, stab me? This guy's like, yeah, he asked me to do that. And so I did. And here's his crown and armband that I took when he did that so I could bring them to you. Like, so we're cool, right? So... A lot of people don't know how to interpret this. Some people think, well, maybe that's what happened. Maybe these are two different stories. Maybe they don't go together. I think the most likely thing is that what happened happened. Saul kills himself. But this guy gets away, and he is trying to say to David, like, hey, man, I, I, I was always with you anyway. You know, like, we're cool, right? You know, like, I want to benefit from this situation as much as I can. This is how the world functions, right? You know, hey, man, look, I mean, I wouldn't have done it. I mean, you know, but I did do it, you know. I'm that guy who killed Saul. You know, the guy who was trying to kill you. Like, I'm that guy. So, and look, I got the stuff to prove it. And I, th I think he thinks David's going to be like, man, awesome. That's great news. And, I'm, and you're, you brought me great news. And you're the guy, you were involved in the great news. Like, how awesome. Like, let's, let's all talk about how great this guy is, you know. That's what I think the guy's thinking. But then David says this in verse 14. Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? which he probably didn't even do, right? Then David called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David said to him, your blood is on your own, be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. That's some heavy stuff. So the guy's trying to get, uh, trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to get some sort of 
benefit from this, and it doesn't work at all. And this reveals something that's changed in David, which we'll get to in a minute. And David even laments Saul's death. And, and like, you know, David's, we've been talking, Kevin talked a lot about, and he's referenced a couple other times about the Psalms David's been writing. And if you look at the book of Psalms, a lot of them refer to different times in David's life, you know, like when they're in the wilderness and then when, you know, some of them in the stronghold and all this kind of stuff. And that's why this language is in there, wilderness language. I mean, David spent a lot of time in the wilderness, not just as a shepherd, but even running from Saul, you know. And then this lament actually makes it into Second uh, Samuel. And you see, he, he writes a poem in a song, I guess, lamenting the fall of Saul and Jonathan. And he says, a gazelle lies on your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. And from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they, will not be, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. Wouldn't he be happy about this? Wouldn't he be celebrating? I mean, isn't it about darn time that David's the king and the bad guy's out of the way? But we'll get to that. The third story, David becomes the king, right? So now I'm going I'm to paraphrase for you a very complicated piece of interpersonal uh, political uh, I don't know, shuffling that happens. So Saul's dead. David is alive, but not everybody in Israel knows that, right? So David is immediately declared the king of Judah, where he's at. But then the other parts of Israel, um, one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, is declared king by Abner, who is one of Saul's commanders, because he's like, well, Saul's dead, so I guess you're the king now. And this is a powerful enough guy to do something like that. So now we've got, uh uh-oh, we've got two kings going on, right? And so some of Ishbosheth's Men end up fighting uh, some of David's men once. And then, so one of the guys is pursuing Abner, that guy who um, who made Ishbosheth the king. And then he's like, hey, man, because they all know each other. He's like, dude, stop following me because you're my friend's, you're my friend's brother, and I don't want to kill you. But he keeps following him, so he does kill him. So it's Asael, the brother of Joab. He follows Abner, and Abner has to kill him because he won't leave him alone. And so... But Joab is one of David's, like, main men. So he's, like, really mad because he finds out that Abner kills his, his brother. So he's like, gosh, I hate that guy. But then Ishbosheth and Abner start having issues. So Abner comes to David and says, hey, I want to make you king over all Israel. Like, everybody else wants you to be king anyway. Like, forget this Ishbosheth guy, you know. And, but after he leaves, making a plan with David, like, David's like, that sounds like a good idea. And he's like, okay, I'll start getting things ready. Then Joab comes back and he's like, hey, wait a minute. That's the guy that killed my brother. So he chases him down and then kills him. And then David is mad because he's like, why did you, like, we just made an agreement with that guy. You killed him. And David says to Joab, he's like, like, he kind of has a curse on him. He's like, hey, you're on your own. So, but then once Abner's dead, okay, because Ishbosheth's the king over there, but Abner's now dead. He was kind of really the power that was going on. So now two of the raiders, and like, they're like, hey, you know, that David guy is going to be in charge then. So let's go kill Ishbosheth and, like, his guys, and then we'll go take to David and be like, hey, look, we killed the guy. We're like, we brought all these people to you. Like, we can be the heroes now, right? So did y'all follow everything I just said? <laughs> I'm going to give, I told, I told you, I'm going to give this, this complicated matter a godfather factor of about seven as far as, like, people killing each other to accomplish means and things like that. And I don't mean that David or anybody's the god. I just mean, like, you know, godfather factor. So, uh, but David, again, this is the thing. 
uh, in 2 Samuel 4, these guys come to David with the same sort of thing. They're like, hey, look, we killed the guy. The, you know the guy that wasn't like you? The guy who was against you? Your enemy or whatever? You know, you're the king now. And look, we killed them, you know. And so Saul is dead. With, uh, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead. This is what David is saying back, all right? So they, they come in with like, look, we've got him. We've killed him. Everything's cool. We're cool, right? Everybody's cool, right? And David says, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was their reward. That was the reward I gave him for his news. I would put that in quotation marks now for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and in his own bed? Should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid you of the earth? And so David has these guys killed too. So again, you got two guys trying to come in like, hey, man, bro, look, I killed the guy. We're cool, right? And then he's like, no, we're not cool. And the, and the other thing was like Ishbosheth like kind of didn't do anything wrong. I mean, part of the story, he wasn't the greatest, but like he was asleep when this happened or whatever. You know, he's in his own, he's not even fighting. It wasn't like on the battlefield. It was like you literally snuck in and killed the guy. And uh, uh, so all the tribes come to David at Hebron and said, we are your flesh and your blood. And in the past, Saul was king over us. And then they make David the king. But remember, the Philistines are there, so it's not like over yet. So in verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him, and David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out of the valley of Rephaim. David inquired of the Lord again, shall I go attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, yes, go. And, and they do, and he tells David, like, exactly how to do it this time. You know, wait till you hear the sound of marching in the treetops, and then you'll know to attack. And they do, and they win. Okay? So they start cleaning out the Philistines from Israel. So it's, this is where we end up. All those weeks ago, we started at the very beginning of this, where Saul was not that great of a king, and God had the, had the prophet anoint a new king. And it's taken all the way, all these weeks, to get to where David's the king now. But it doesn't quite feel as great as maybe as it should, you know? And that's why I meant that this is a bittersweet story. And it really challenged me about my trust in God as I reflected on it this week. But here are the points I want you to get from this. When we come like coming out of the wilderness, right? What does it look like to come out of the wilderness? Have you ever been on or been with, like, okay, I mean, our youth are about to go on a youth camp. It's maybe not a wilderness. But there's going to be, like, the morning we drop them all off, and they're all like, yeah, and then they're going to come back, like, whoa, like y'all been somewhere, you know what I mean? Hopefully it's all good, but sometimes it's like, you know, if you, go, if you go on like a camping trip or like a hiking trip and it rains the whole time, you come back a little different than when you left, you know what I mean? And we, I would go through this a lot. We were in Boy Scouts and you go backpacking. And when you backpack, you have to carry all the stuff with you, literally. Like I, I'm carrying this. And so after about day one, you go, why did I bring all this junk, you know? And you start kind of finding ways to get rid of stuff. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. But you come back, you know, when you see people at the airport after they've been somewhere, they've been somewhere, you know. So that's what I want us to think about today, coming out of the wilderness. Because our world is a wilderness, a wilderness of many types. Um, And if you remember, we just went through John. In John 17, Jesus literally, like, kind of talks about this and that we're not only in a wilderness with God, but in a wilderness, right? Okay. Okay. He's actually sending us into that wilderness all the time. We are sent ones into the wilderness. We can't just avoid it or hope that we can 
get our little stronghold. Because if you even can look from this metaphorically, David's stronghold doesn't work. They came in and raided it. And they did get everything back, but that's just because God's cool. It's not because the strongholds work, okay? But Jesus in John 17 says this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world or the wilderness, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may be truly sanctified. And we won't get too deep into that because we just went through all that. You know it. That Mark Sayers book I mentioned last week, The Non-Anxious Presence, he quotes Henry Nouwen saying this, um, our society is not a community. This is our society, just everywhere, the world, okay? Define the world as everything you encounter in your life, okay? Where you live, the people you're around, the attitudes that drive our society, stuff you see on social media, that's the world, right? That's the wilderness we're talking about. Our society is not a community radiant with the love of Christ, but instead it's a dangerous network of domination and manipulation in which we can easily get entangled and lose our soul. Does that sound like do you, I, I, read, I read that and go, yeah, that sounds about right. Does that, that sound about right to you guys? I'll read it one more time. Our society is not a community radiant with the love of Christ, but a dangerous network of domination and manipulation in which we can easily get entangled and lose our soul. And Mark Sayers reflecting on this says, our entanglement in this toxic social network warps our sense of self. Okay? Secularity, or leaning into that world, is a way of being dependent on the responses of the people around us or that world by the responses we get back from it. The, this anxious, secular self points to the need for ongoing and increasing affirmation. Who am I? And then we answer it with this reaction. I am the one who is liked or praised or admired or disliked or hated or despised, depending on what character you want to invent you know, to inhabit whatever false self. What matters is how I am perceived by the world. And the thing about the wilderness is it rids us of this illusion of the false self. That's exactly what I think David exemplifies in these stories, and I'll show you how. Because the wilderness has the tendency to turn us into Saul or a David, okay? Saul went the bad way where he leaned fully into that secularity, you know, God had anointed him king. God had said, this is the guy to be the king. God had said, this is what I want you to do. This is how you need to do it. And then Saul decided to stop doing that. And he even said, if you remember, he did that because he feared what the people would say. He was started to be led by the responses of these people. And he ends up losing trust in God, and then he can't see clearly anymore, and he takes things personally, and he he can't see how God sees the deeper issues around, and he's controlled by his emotions, and he's focused on himself, like, to the core, right? Which is just a fallen nature. And then you see what happens. It just falls apart. Or the wilderness has, can have a tendency to turn you into a David, and this is what we see. These are the points from today that we need to take away. I think that David had learned who God was again. David, if you remember, God always he says, this is a man after my heart, you know, David had known who God was. David had built a relationship with God in the wilderness while he was a shepherd taking care of sheep and had used that understanding of who God is in an application against the giant. Because he's like, who is this guy? And they're like, well, what are you going to do? But he's like, I'm not going to do anything, but God will. You know, like, why are we letting him be this? You know, why are we taking, you know, 
And then David's life gets into like a meat grinder, and then he has a hard time with some stuff, just like we do. That's the thing. Like, don't, like, one of the great things about David as a hero is he's like the rest of us. But he finds out again who God is. And I think you can see this um, because the wilderness reminds us that we can't do things alone. You know, David did kill Goliath, but he knew that that was God. You know what I mean? And he's reminded of, you know, when he moves with God, how things go, and when he takes things into his own hands, how terrible it goes, right? And the hole just gets deeper. And then he gets in this situation where everything is taken from them, even from the stronghold that they built in the wilderness, but God even was able to restore that. It makes it... He's, he's in the wilderness like we are. Like when you go out there by yourself, like right now you've got your house, you've got your air conditioning, you've got your whatever, and then you just go out like, I'm going to go on a survival camp and have nothing like those guys do on TV. You know what I mean? Which, by the way, those guys that make fire in like five minutes, that's not possible. Like that's probably like two hours of work. Just want to – like that's really hard. <laughs> so meaning without a match or something. Um, go try it one day. But you learn really quick how like much you take for granted – you know, and what you can't do by yourself. You're like, I saw the guy make fire on TV. It's probably pretty easy. It's not. And then you won't be able to do it, and then it's raining. And you're like, geez, like, life, me living on my own with no help is pretty bad, you know. We find those kind of things out in our wildernesses, um, real wildernesses or emotional wildernesses. But then when God meets us there, we start to go, you see how things change and how you can be in the wilderness with God or the wilderness without God. And like we said last week, the wilderness without God is pretty terrible, but the wilderness with God can be something com- completely different. And you, I think you see evidence of this in the two times that people come and tell David news that they think will make him happy, and he's not. Because he's able to see deeper into the situations than just the surface level. Because both of these things would benefit him tremendously. So if he was um, focused on himself and his position in this kind of, what, what did he say, uh, dangerous network of dominion, domination and manipulation. Like, that is kind of how the world works, like this dog-eat-dog sort of world. Both of these pieces of information were like, great, this dog eats that dog, win, right? In this kind of zero-sum, I have to rise to the top sort of way. I take over, I, I win, you know? Both of these would be good news. And people that were living in that way thought it was good news. But David was saw the sadness that God experienced from this, I think, in a deeper way. The second thing... David learned who God was. The second thing is David learned who he was, meaning like you, you can't do this on your own. Um, and I think you see that again in those two times that those people, uh, those people try to impress him and it doesn't. But also you see him, he's like, you know what? Maybe I should inquire of the Lord. <laughs> and he does. And I think the deepest thing that David learned from this is, in this moment, in this piece of the story, is that he learned that God is the stronghold. Because he'd built a stronghold in the wilderness, and it didn't work. I mean, it kind of worked. Like, all of ours kind of work, you know? Like, you can insulate. I can keep people out of the parts of my life that I don't want them to see because it's too painful. And then I can look better than everybody, or whatever, you know? That's what we do. I can look really good to everybody because I don't let you see this part of my life, you know. That'll work for a while till the Amalekites show up and take everything, you know what I mean? Sometimes it shows up because somebody finally sees what's on your computer, and that goes like, oh, my gosh, like, this is terrible. Really, that's God's mercy, you see what I'm saying? But our lives, you know, we can do this, but we're only fooling ourselves. 
David, I think, realized in that moment, I mean, think about it. I mean, I haven't done the best job today of getting the emotions right, but he was in a horrible situation of, uh, I've done this to myself, now I've got to live this, like, you know, do I have to fight my own people? These are people I love. I don't, and remember, these guys know each other. They're not like, you know, that's eh, some guy, you know, that's like, you saw in that story, it's like, your brother and I are like really cool, I don't want to kill you, please stop, this kind of thing. You know, they know each other. That's a bad situation that's hard to even to like connect with. And then God gets him out of it. He's like, oh my gosh, I can go back to my place, my hiding place where I can keep everything under control and nobody, you know, da 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 da. And we've survived. I've gotten through this hard time with this kind of thing. I've gotten through with this. You know, I'll give you everything, God, but don't touch this because this is the safe place. And then you get there and you realize it's all been destroyed and they've taken everything. Again, this is mercy because he realizes, oh gosh, even the strongholds I make don't work. The only stronghold you have is God himself. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he says, I'm sending them into the world, but I'm praying that you keep them from the evil one. He wants the dependence on them. So David learns about, relearns who God is. David, David knows who God is now. David knows who he is and who he can actually be. And he knows that God's the only stronghold. And he's not driven anymore by what everybody thinks. And the guys show up trying to get him in the way that everybody thinks, and it doesn't work anymore. You can see that. You should be really excited about this. And he's like, instead, I'm sad because my friends are dead. And you see this. We talked a couple weeks ago about the wilderness that Jesus enters into to bind the strong men. Jesus literally goes in. He, he go, he, okay, like David, this is the same story here. David is anointed king, and... He's in the wilderness still, right? Then he gets in some adjacency to the kingship, but he's still in another wilderness. And then finally now we're at the king thing, right? So Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. The voice of God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You're like, wow, that's a great day, right? And then immediately Jesus is in the wilderness fighting the devil. He's fasting, and the devil comes and tempts him with the same stuff he tempts us with. Like, what if you had all the power or if you had food or, you know, whatever, you know. And Jesus rebukes him each time with Scripture. And it says this at the end. After Jesus wins, he wins. Jesus wins. Jesus doesn't lose, like, ever. So this shouldn't be a surprise. But he wins against the devil head on. And it says this, Luke 4, verse 13. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left until an opportune time. Right? Does it sound like that's over? And then if you keep reading, like, in my Bible, there's a... so like. That's two wins in a row. Are we, are, we, are we there? Like, one, you get baptized, and this is my son in whom I'm well. It's like, wow, that doesn't happen for everybody. You know, big moment. Then he goes and faces the devil himself and wins. Another big moment. I mean, that was a wilderness. This was, this was a stretch. This was like what we were just talking about the last couple weeks. This is where you find out who you really are. This is where you find out who God really is. You, feel like, you know, this is where that's happening. <laughs> And then this is the heading of the next section of, before verse 14 in the Bible I was reading, Jesus rejected at Nazareth. So it's, you would think, like, gosh, man, can I get a break? Jesus goes in, in a synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to set the oppressed free. 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back. And the attendant sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then, isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Like, didn't you, like, build houses around here? Like, what are you talking about? You know, it starts to creep in, this, the way people think, right? So Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, which they do eventually when he's on the cross, you know. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you do in Capernaum. And I tell you, he continued, this is interesting. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but a widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon, which is kind of outside of Israel. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue thought that was great, what he said. No, as all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. That didn't go so well, right? But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So, Kayla, come up. I'm going to close. I know this is a lot of weird stuff I'm talking about. So, hopefully, um, this is where it will all start to make sense. Um, Coming out of the wilderness. Wildernesses are necessary. Wildernesses are unavoidable. Wildernesses are just a part of our life. Wilderness is how you could describe all of our interaction with the world around us. And the choice we have is to be with God or without him. You don't get a choice about the wilderness. That's the part that we kind of imagine we get. Like, well, I mean, I like the baptism part where Jesus gets, God says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Can I skip the part where you have to go into the wilderness and face the devil? Because that sounds hard. The answer is no. It just happens, you know. But here's this interesting phrase, the mighty have fallen. Okay? This is what I want to say about this. This is complicated because this isn't just a movie, right? This isn't just like, and then Luke blew up the Death Star and everybody was happy, you know. It's complicated. This is a real story of a real person, okay? I, David writes a lament that's so deep to him that they include it in this. You know, it's actually in this book, in series. Like, this is very important. And I read only a small piece of it. You can go back and read it yourself. I think when finally getting the information, essentially, two different times, you're now finally going to be the king. You're going to finally be the thing that God's put in you from so long ago. You're finally going to do it. You're finally going to be somebody. You're finally going to be there. You're finally going to get through this whole thing. It's finally going to happen. This is what you've been waiting on. This is what you've been praying for. This is what you've known God has made you to do. You're finally going to get to do it. He says this, I might have fallen. And I think the first thing he means by that is that his friends have died. David was hurt by these people, but he didn't hate them. And I think it probably is a lot like this. 
You ever been around people who are at a funeral for someone that was in their life? Like, let's just, if you, if you will be around this in your life. Somebody has an abusive father. And finally, that man dies. And there's a funeral to remember him. And like a real life, again, not a movie, like a real life, there's a really complicated emotions everybody's experiencing. Because on one hand, he's your dad. But on the other hand, he's done some of the worst things to you of anybody in the entire world. He's hurt you more than anybody that you've ever met. And that's over now. So in one sense, there's a relief. He can't do that anymore. And then on the other hand, but he was my dad. And parts of him I miss. And then there's other parts like, it didn't have to be this way. You know, this whole thing with Saul didn't have to be this way. Saul's the one who made it that way. It could have been all right. Jonathan and David made plans of how this is going to work. Even after Saul was rejected and David was going to be the next king, Jonathan was like, I'm actually cool with this. We could do this together. You be the king and I'll be right there with you. Now Jonathan's dead, again, because it's kind of Saul's fault. So even when David had seen how it was going to be, me and Jonathan are going to take over from Saul, and we're going to do things, you know? That's not going to happen now. It's different. It didn't have to be this way. And there's something about the way God creates things and intends things and wants things to be and how we get involved and through God's amazing indwelling of the Spirit, miracles happen. Even like David fights Goliath and wins. But then also... We monkey things up, you know, and it's like there's a loss when we don't follow him that leaves a mark. And it's not that God can't restore things. He does, and he will. But there's a deeper feeling there. And I think David's connecting with the heart of God here that in spite of finding out in this moment, which is complicated, I told you this was a wrestle for me, you're finally being everything you've been looking for. It's all finally working. He's sad. So the first thing I think is that he's sad that his friends have died. And the second thing, I think he starts to maybe broaden a little bit. The mighty have fallen. Who, the mighty ones? You mean like the Saul's who try to stop? Wait, what can stand against the word of the Lord? Nothing. But a lot of people sure do think they can. Saul in this story does think he can several times, like a bunch of times. He tries to kill David. He's like, I promise I won't do that. I know you're right. And he probably tries to kill him again. And one of the times he actually tries to kill him or chase after him, he gets caught up in the spirit, if you remember, and he's even prophesying. Like, that would wake me up a little. Like, when I try to do something against this guy, I end up prophesying over him because I'm forced to by the spirit of God against my will, maybe. That's a little weird to our hearing, you know? But there's a lot of mighty people in the world, mighty on the world's terms. Remember in that doggy dog sort of world? People that have power, influential people. We call people influencers now, which I don't really care for or get much. But, you know, there's lots of influencers that think they can influence God or influence, influence you know, against him. You know, if I think this, it's the way it is. 
I have power. Political power, financial power, you know, entertainment power. You just like me and you'll do what I say. You know, this is how the world runs. And people think, I could stop what God's doing. The kingdom of God. I could stop that. It's make-believe anyway. Like, what? how much of this stuff's even real? You're just making this stuff up. Meanwhile, God isn't, isn't over here going, oh, no, they might be right. It's not how God feels about any of it. But he's saddened by that attitude, right? But as David, the mighty have fallen, it didn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And then these people are standing up. The mighty people think they can stop the move of God. They've fallen. That's the second way. And then the third way, which really starts to get personal. I think that David could also mean how the mighty have fallen. That false self I had, the one that I made of myself, the one I thought I was, the one I thought I, you know, when I had to take matters into my own hands, that false self is gone. And God's the only one who can take that one away. Because the wilderness is where our false self dies. Either we die or our false self dies. In the wilderness, we're isolated from others, but we're not isolated from God. And in the wilderness, we find out who we really are, and we find out who God really is. And in the wilderness, we learn what it means to really depend on God so that the next time we encounter the wilderness, even the valley of the shadow of death, we can encounter it with God. Like the psalm says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't go, maybe if I stray near it sometimes. The wilderness is where God, Moses met God on the flaming, the flaming bush. The wilderness is where Israel had to depend on God for 40 years to enter the promised land. It's where David learned all of this that he's learned. Multiple wildernesses, guys. Multiple, not just one. Multiple. The world is a wilderness. The wilderness is where Hosea says Israel will fall back in love with God. That's where he's going to woo her. That's what he does to us too. There's times where like all of this stronghold I've made, this false self I've made, all of it gets to be too much and it has to crash down so that in the wilderness you finally remember, oh yeah, that's the God I love and he loves me. You see, in the because we know ultimately this prof, this is a prophetic word over you. It's a prophetic word over me. It's a prophetic word over anyone who's following the Lord. In Song of Solomon 8, 5, this is question, Who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? John Thurlow, when he wrote it, rewrote it in a song, he said, I know the end of the story. I come up from the wilderness, leaning on my beloved. That is the end of the story. You're in the wilderness now. But you can be in the wilderness with God or without God, knowing that the wilderness isn't the end. I feel a little strange because I feel like I've just given everybody, like, here's a stack of papers to read all this, but, you know... (laughs) But I hope that, and I pray that, places in your heart that you retreat in the wilderness, those strongholds that you build, 
those hiding places, you'll realize, just take my word for it, they're not going to work. And we're not going to be the Amalekites that come raid your place. But when God lets that happen, know it's his mercy because he needs you to know to trust only him and he's the only stronghold. And then it won't matter anymore what the wilderness is that we have to encounter. And that we will come out of the wilderness leaning on our beloved. Because God doesn't cause every bad thing that happens in our life. I don't think that's a good way to theologically unpack that. You know, that God consciously wills every experience we ever have. And I'm not detracting from God's omniscience or omnipresence or omnipotence or anything like that. But if you have to imagine that God wills that every single thing we experience is directly what he would have happened, I think you have to, you run into issues with the scripture itself because a lot of the Bible is God not getting what he wants if that's the context we're going to have that conversation. Do you understand what I'm saying? So lots of wildernesses are caused by other people. Did David want Saul to be chasing him into the wilderness? No. Did God want Saul to chase David into the wilderness? No. Was David being chased by Saul into the wilderness? Yes. Was that terrible? Yes. Did God use it in David's life for something good? Yes. And that's what he's going to do for each and every one of us. So, Father, I pray that we would be people who lean on you in the wilderness and through that come up out of it. And we're ready to encounter any wilderness in our lives, the valley of the shadow of death or anything, because we trust you. We trust you when you directly give us little instructions of do this, do that. But we also trust you when you just say, it's going to be all right. So I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that we would be those coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on our beloved. So do that work in us, Lord. And let us surrender to you the strongholds we build to protect ourselves. Because we know that you're the only one that we can surrender them to. You're the only one trustworthy. In Jesus' name. So while they sing a song, if you want to come up here and pray, we'll pray with you. Um, if you want to sing along, sing along. And uh, let's let the mighty men that stand against the Lord.